welcome to Finding the Glitter and the Gold, a Middle Earth chat podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm Zoe. And we are always discussing the works of John Ronald Rayl Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, who was writing Middle Earth stories, well, publishing them at least, writing them pretty much all his life. Um, but he first published them in 1937 when he was 45, all the way up into his death in 1973, when he still had not made an internally consistent narrative for his Middle Earth tales. So any mistakes that we make or random tangents that take us to strange places are because we're just making like J.R. Tolkien and we're making shit up. And so today we are going to be discussing something near and dear to our femme hearts. Uh, where are, are all the damn women in Tolkien? Where did they go? Disappeared. They're straight up missing. <laughs> Legit. Like, they did not die. We lost them, says Treebeard. There's so many races and yet no damn women. And uh, I had questions and Zoe thankfully took the time to dig into where these women are, the Entwives, the Duero Dams, and the women of Mirkwood. I sent you, I sent you this on Tumblr. Yeah. It was uh, a, a woman who now makes the new She-Ra. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this is uh, Noelle and Noelle from... Tumblr as Ginger Hazing. She has not updated there in a very long time, but back when she first watched The Hobbit, she absolutely loved the aesthetic and made a whole bunch of comics about it. And in this one that I sent to Zoe, it's um, Tariel talking with, which Hobbit is this guy? Who's her love interest? Keely? I don't remember. It was fake. I don't care because it's fake. It's fake and it's bad and it's Keely. Uh, and Keely is asking her, so, so you're an elf lady, huh? And she says, yep. And he says, you'd think there'd be more of you. She says, there used to be, but we lost them. And he says, oh no, how did they die? And she says, they didn't die. We lost them and now cannot find them. And he says, oh, have I mentioned how there are so few dwarf women that it's widely believed there are none? And Tariel says, I'm detecting a theme here, which <laughs> indeed we did as well. <laughs> Hence this episode. Indeed. And of course, the entire monologue or dialogue of Tariel is directly quoted from the uh, the Ents. So. Yes. So I guess the whole Tariel thing is more based on the movies where they straight up invented a female character, which, I mean, I appreciate. I appreciate it from the sense of, like, where are the women? I don't appreciate it from the sense of it's not fucking canon because she didn't fucking exist. I mean, I can understand where other people are coming from. I don't have that sort of, like... Um, sense of this is my childhood or anything with the hobbit so i was like oh yay a woman <laughs> <laughs> look oob sighting <laughs> oh i wish um she's quoting the ends there but it was kind of its own little movie canon i guess i don't know if there's textual evidence for mirkwood ladies being missing so i did look for that i went on a long hunt and I didn't find anything that was specific in terms of there not being woman, but I also did not find any woman. So you can do you can do the analysis as you wish. Sure. Apparently, specifically regarding Ents, the only like elven woman that were mentioned um, were 
Eldar or the Anur, there wasn't, there weren't many specific elven women that would have been from Mirkwood. Obviously there was Arwen, there was Galadriel, and then there were a bunch of women out of the legends of the Silmarillion. Like the Silmarillion of all the books had the most women, female characters, um, who played kind of an important role. Um, there was also a large, large, large number of Hobbit women that had names, and then a good number of the race of men woman that had names but there weren't that many elven women and dwarven women were literally just listed under d for dwarves and it said there aren't any they believe that they don't exist and then for ents um again it says referenced only they disappeared there is one that is named and the ant woman that has a name is Thimbrathel. Yeah, I don't really want to make an argument that like Tolkien was sexist or not, but it's one of those situations where um, you got to think about all of the different tests that have been created. And I say tests in quotes where there's like the Bechdel test where in order to pass the Bechdel test, a movie must have two named female characters who talk to each other about something that is not a man. And this doesn't prove anything particularly. It just brings attention to the fact that that is almost impossible to find in a lot of movies. Um, and then there's also the sexy lamp test, which is, can a female character be replaced by a sexy lamp without changing anything in the plot? Didn't know that was a test. I just learned something. So, I mean, to be fair, Tolkien would pass the sexy lamp test because Galadriel is the wisest elven lady, the wisest elf in all the land, even more wise than Elrond, um, and Eowyn kills the Witch King of Angmar. In the movie, Arwen saves Frodo. That's not really how it happens in the book, but he doesn't pass the Bechdel test at all. Yeah, and again, these aren't signifiers that something is or isn't feminist. That's not really the point, but it's more giving female characters some time and space to exist is more what it's going for. And that's definitely not Tolkien's thing, but I'm still very curious about how women played into his works and the women in his life too might have influenced things. So I did a little bit of research on that. Um, before we go on to Tolkien's life, um, one interesting thing in terms of Eowyn and the role that she played I was looking at a article that referenced a bunch of different rough drafts of the Lord of the Rings. I guess they have on file draft A through F or G. And a woman who I have talked about before, Megan Fontenbal, she wrote an article looking at the character of Eowyn. And apparently Tolkien changed her character over the course of the drafts. She went from being a really important woman in the Rohan society and having to say and sitting in with the men and having a voice to being important, but also someone who doesn't have a say in the politics, who is supposed to stay at home and not go to war. Um, originally, she was described explicitly as like the Amazon of Rohan. And then that became what she ended up being, but she wasn't supposed to be. So I thought that was a super interesting character change over the course of edits. I feel like a lot of the things that I'm learning about Tolkien's edits are that he tried to add more conflict 
between characters who were kind of on the sides. Like you talked about in one episode where um, Denethor and Faramir originally had a pretty nice relationship and Tolkien really wanted them to, but it wasn't enough conflict. And it says something about his writing that the more he went into it, the more he was like, I think I need my characters to struggle more with each other or with the society itself. Um, that can be a really strong thing for writing. And that's what Eowyn represented in a lot of ways, was that struggle with the society she's born into. So I also, I looked at Tolkien's biography because I know, I know a little bit about Tolkien, but I was curious if there was specifically any female relationships that might have influenced his work. Um, and so TolkienSociety.org has a beautiful biography of Tolkien. But both his father and mother died before he was 12 years old. His father died first in 1896. Uh, which was when the Tolkien family moved from South Africa back to England. Tolkien's mother then converted herself and her children to Roman Catholicism, which ostracized them from the rest of their family, which I could see would be, a, if not something he necessarily held against her, it definitely would mean that uh, his mother Mabel and his sister were kind of all that he had in terms of family at that point. Did he stay Roman Catholic his whole life? Yes, and his uh, wife, Edith, ended up converting to Catholicism for him. Oh. So, but the same year that Mabel converted the family in 1906, she was diagnosed with diabetes and passed away. And she had given or asked Father Francis Xavier Morgan of the Birmingham Oratory to be his guardian. However, Tolkien and his sister ended up physically boarding with what is, quote, an unsympathetic aunt. Uh, and then after with a, a woman by the name of Mrs. Faulkner who had a boarding, a boarding house in Birmingham because he was still in school in Birmingham. So it was easier to get to and from school. So my sense from that was that he didn't necessarily have the best relationship with female counterparts in his life. It didn't say much about what his relationship with his mother was specifically but it sounds like there was a lot of potential strife or conflict or lack of warmth that he may have experienced in that regard. Uh, you said his sister? Yes. Uh, he had a younger brother. Sorry, brother. My bad, brother. Sorry. I did a little bit of pre-research for Tolkien and Lewis episode, but his brothers just they had the name Hillary. <laughs> well, there you go. Didn't know that was a boy's name. Yeah, I'll sneak it in there. Um, I know he did have probably a pretty good relationship with his cousins, Mary and Marjorie Insuldon, who were the first to construct a language and share it with him, which was animalic. He was studying Latin and Anglo-Saxon at the time, and Mary and Marjorie kind of lost interest in animalic, but Mary and Tolkien invented more complex languages, including one called Nevbosch. Nevbosch? <laughs> yeah. And then he created his own language after that, Neferin, and then he moved on to all of the Elvish variations that you've talked about before. But yeah, he, he definitely was comfortable, I think, with women <laughs> and had a decent relationship with his cousins. It's an interesting, um, like, the relationship with female peers versus adults. Authority figures. Who Authority are, figures, you know. yeah. Definitely plays a role, probably the power dynamics of that. That makes sense. I mean, his father died early and his mom shifted them around and converted them to Catholicism and all of this and decided, you know, that he would be raised by a priest, allegedly. And then 
but then he and his wife Edith had a beautiful marriage, um, which he represented through the story of Baron and Luthien, which we've talked a little bit before. Um, so I know that he had a loving and beautiful relationship with her, but again, also a peer. Some other ideas of as to why there might be so many missing women is, I mean, he did write based off a lot of his experiences with World War I, um, and there was always a theme of male friendship and male camaraderie that he had found within the war that he was expressing in his books and within his characters, Sam and Frodo being very obvious soldier batsman references. And the pre-industrial revolution style societies of Lord of the Rings were traditional female-male roles. And there was, when men went off to war, and most of Lord of the Rings is people fighting and hacking other people to bits. I mean, the elf women have kind of an advisory role or support, but with a lot of knowledge, I guess. And then Eowyn's there with the physicality aspect. (laughs) Strength. I mean, the the women who are in Lord of the Rings do tend to be very strong. They do play very important roles. There just aren't many of them. I feel like Tolkien had his, like, respecting women juice moments. And Aragorn always did respect Eowyn. He always spoke very highly of her when they're in the Golden Hall and she's had this dark dream. And he says, what do you fear the most? And she says that I'll be stuck in a cage. And he says, you do not seem like you, that will be your fate. Like he very clearly has such respect for her and for her strength and power and that she holds herself and is proud of herself. Yeah, I mean, Viggo Mortensen plays that out so well in the movies too, where there's like a lot of love and respect and I don't know, appreciation for her that he keeps very platonic and like he has some clear boundaries and, They both respect those boundaries. (laughs) Well, she wants more. And he's like, no, I can't. And she's like, fuck, I can't compete with an elf. (laughs) Not many people can compete with Arwen, though. No. Liv Tyler, man. Goddamn. Originally, Eowyn and Aragorn, and again, going back to the rough drafts, uh, were supposed to be lovers. There was no Arwen in some of the original drafts. And it was said that um, there's like a side note of Aragorn never has an heir after Eowyn dies in the Pelennor Fields. Oh. So the entire story changed a lot over the course of writing it, where she doesn't die, King Theoden dies, and she lives and meets Theramir, and then Arwen becomes a thing. It seems like he really liked to have some romance. <laughs> he did. He, I mean, I, again, his relationship with Edith was very much a blueprint for all of the romances that he wrote in Lord of the Rings. I really appreciate that with authors. This is going to sound out of absolute left field, but the thing that I love about Stephen King, almost the only thing that I love about Stephen King (laughs) is how he writes marriages. Sometimes they're fucking terrifying. Like The Shining scared the shit out of me, but the ones that are very loving, like Lisey's story and stuff like that, I'm like, you know what a good marriage can be with all those little jokes and that like total respect for another person and it's it's beautiful to see and I don't know uh, again because I haven't read the books how Tolkien portrays these kind of things but the fact that he needs he feels such a pull to include these for all of his characters to kind of like pair them up <laughs> and get happy endings for them with someone else like that signifies to him how important romance and love are yeah I totally agree with that yeah 
We've talked about the missing dwarf women a little bit already, um, just how they look the same as the dwarf men and people yeah. have their assumptions about that. Yeah, I didn't, besides what we've already talked about with the dwarf woman, I didn't really find any more information about them. Uh, they made up less than a third of the race of dwarves. Uh, they seldom traveled and they looked about the same. I mean, to me that implies when one third of the population is women, that implies to me that there might be some sort of matriarchal situation going on. Yeah, but in Tolkien's history, it's always like it was the father, the seven fathers of the dwarves that were created, not the seven mothers. Um, and they were created by a male spirit, Anur figure. So I don't know if it would be matriarchy. I like to think that like fathers of the dwarves or kings or whatever is kind of just like a title. And uh, it doesn't matter what gender the dwarf is, because like, how are you going to know that? They look the same on the outside. So you kind of just have somebody there who is the king and the father and who knows what they got going on. <laughs> Wouldn't that be kind of funny if the very first Durin, because Durin was one of the original seven fathers and then he's the namesake that got passed on uh, in terms of the dwarven leaders. It'd be kind of funny if the original Durin was actually a woman. And they just didn't realize it because they look the same. Yeah. I mean, again, this is stuff that's talked about in Terry Pratchett things. Yeah. The king of the dwarves uh, at one point in the books is a woman. And it's just kind of like glossed over and not talked about because, again, they kind of don't have a word for woman or queen. Like they don't have that. There's a whole... um, opera in in the Terry Pratchett books that's uh talking about like the creation of the monarchy for dwarves and everything and it's based on the ring cycle uh that opera series oh it's like a love story between these dwarves and everyone is always like so the two love interest dwarves which one of them was and they're always interrupted with they were both dwarves And that's all that is said about that. They're like, they don't talk about which was the man or the woman, or even if they're one of them was, it's like, these are dwarves and they're in love. So they're the original non-binary folk. Well, is it non-binary if you only have one gender that you can be? That's kind of the thing that Pratchett talks about in his stuff. Until they interact with humans, they're kind of just like, gender's not super important. Or whatever they want to be. So to go, to go into the ends a little bit, yeah. Because um, I, did, I did some research on that. And again, literally, Treebeard is like, no, they didn't die. We lost them. We can't find them. Um, so the Entwives, literally, there's a translation. Apparently, Entwives translates to Entwomen. I'm not really sure why Tolkien decided to give this a translation. Maybe he just liked the term Entwives better than saying Entwomen. Like he's some sort of Ent biologist. Like the female Ents and the male Ents. Maybe. Duero Dams was totally out of nowhere, too. Oh, yeah. I like Duero Dams. That was a fun name. Um, but the, the Entwives liked to plant things and have orchards and tend gardens. So they moved away from the forests of the Ents to the Brownlands, which were apparently across the River Anduin. And Sauron destroyed this area, and the Entwives disappeared. Sam says that his cousin Hal saw a walking tree near the Shire, and Treebeard says that the Ents would like that land, but it's more than likely that the Entwives were killed or had died off. In one of his letters, Tolkien writes, I think that in fact the Entwives had disappeared for good, being destroyed with their gardens in the War of the Last Alliance. Aww. 
So apparently Tolkien did kill them off, but he almost doesn't quite sound sure of it. Like, I think that in fact, like he's, he's pondering whether or not he wants them to actually be dead or not. And he's not really sure. Well, I think about the attack that happens on Isengard and like the reaction of Treebeard to all the shit that's going down when he sees what happens at Isengard. He's like, oh, some of those trees were my friends. Like um, all of that sort of stuff. I see that as, again, he didn't want to be writing an allegory, but I see that as Tolkien kind of looking a bit sadly upon industrialization and the loss of the Entwives and their orchards and... Uh, what they kind of represented to the Ents, to me, signifies like what could be lost if you lean a little too heavily into industrialization. When Yavanna, who was the uh, partner of Aule, who created the dwarves, uh, when she found out that the dwarves were going to be created and she knew that they would probably want to fell and kill trees, she created the Ents. And then she went to Manwe, the leader of the Anur, and asked for their protection because the trees and the plants and the growing things can't take care of themselves because they can't move. And so she wanted to be able to grant them the, the, the forest's um, protection. And so they created Ents, who are the shepherds of trees. I love that. Right? Like, okay, we have to, we have to protect this thing that cannot take care of itself and is easily destroyed. And they made the protectors basically like the things that they were trying to protect. The only thing they had different was that they could speak to other creatures and they could move. Kind of. Um, apparently, Ents, they, they were beings. They did not look as tree-like as they do now. Um, as the Ents kind of moved less and did less of their shepherding duties and kind of became sleepy, they became more and more tree-like. Um, and they would... The, they they would they were like spirits that could were kind of malleable and they do take on forms similar to the kinds of trees that they protect but they are not just trees that speak they are actually a completely different race okay well i also sent you something on tumblr from our good friend mapsburg oh my god mapsburg so I actually got a tumblr i believe just so you could look at mapsburg stuff yeah it's I won't ask what your username is or anything like that. It's fine. Mapsburg put out there some theories about what Ents from different climates could look like, which I absolutely loved. You see a little bit of this in the movies where you have different tree types, but they're all basically like northerny trees. But Mapsburg imagined like other climate Ents. They are so good. <laughs> he has an entire list. Uh, the first one are the Pine Barrens Ents, which burst into flame at inopportune times and then re-sprout from their toes. <laughs> there are uh, rainforest Ents who have stinging leaves like the Gimpy Gimpy that leave meddling men and orcs writhing in pain. There are the Aspen Ents, who like to joke that they fought in the Clone Wars, defending the Highlands from dragons and wargs. <laughs> Uh, there are palm tree ants, which are hilarious to imagine, patiently navigating their coconut children around the seas of Middle-earth to ensure that every beach is watched over. Which, this would mean that they might have made it to Valinor, which means there might also be ants on Valinor. Coconut ants. Coconut palm tree ants, and I kind of hate it. 
Um, and then there are Melaleuca ants, corrupted and brought to Beleriand by Ulfang and left in the mirrors of twilight in hopes of breaking through the girdle of Melian and destroying Doriath. I didn't understand any of those words. Uh, do you want to try and explain? If it can be a brief one. Okay. Well, I have no idea what Melaleuca trees are. I didn't look that up. But basically, uh, Girdle of Melian. Melian is an owner who cast a spell to protect uh, Doriath, which was a region of Middle-earth. When Melian went away, that entire spell was broken and Doriath was destroyed. Beleriand and Ulfang. Beleriand is one of the lands that across the sea, and Ulfang is a bad person. Thank you for the, the brief translation on that one. Ma- Mapsburg also talks about kelp ants, who complain that Surdin's ships are too hasty as they glide by with their fishing lines, but drag down any watercraft that Melkor or Sauron tries to launch. My next favorite bit that follows this, that is a slightly different post, but I absolutely died over, Five for the Ents Undershaded Leaves is the title of this post, and it says, So Sauron and Celebrimbor made three rings for the elves, seven for the dwarves, and nine for men, plus Sauron's one. That leaves an odd hole at five. I'd like to imagine that they originally made five for the Ents, which was the other major sentient race in Middle-earth, but when the Ents put them on and wore them for a while, the rings ended up like this. And it is a picture a bicycle stuck through the middle of a giant tree trunk because the tree has grown up around the bicycle. And Sauron was just so embarrassed by the whole thing that he cut the ends out of the ring poem entirely. Oh, God, I love that. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> I love thinking about ants because they're one of the weirder races that doesn't really appear in any other, like, fiction. There's not a lot written about them. Um, There's stuff written about elves and dwarves by other authors who borrow from Tolkien's theories about this, but like sentient tree people who protect nature, like all I can think of is like the Lorax. (laughs) Except better. Mm. About as successful, unfortunately. Oh, this is true. But yeah, definitely cooler. Well, and as we talked about last podcast, the word ent probably comes from the old English word in Beowulf, Enten, which meant giants. And Melkor created trolls in like a likeness of Ents. Kind of like how he created orcs out of elves. We tried to basically destroy or change corrupt. corrupt the Ents by making trolls. But the trolls aren't near as strong or as badass as Ents are. Totally. Well, thank you for this lesson on the Ents more specifically, and then missing women in Tolkien in general. This is a good discussion, I think. <laughs> They're just so much fun. Ents, the best. I think it would be really fun to be in Mary and Pippin's place and like go on a walk through the woods with Treebeard, and then and then drink the Ent water, and I could grow. <laughs> How tall do you want to be? I mean, uh, I don't really need to be much. I don't really need to be taller. Any taller you get, you have to carry more weight, man. As somebody who tries to climb when I can, I got a lot of weight to haul up a wall. Yeah, I mean, I guess I like being five feet tall because then I'm pretty compact. Very portable. But 
Well, the noise they made as they grew was kind of cool. So that'd be fun. And then they got like, they like shot glowy bits light out of their mouth and eyes for a little bit there. Maybe you just want it for the glowy eye thing. I mean, I'd like to glow in the dark sometimes. And like, could I drink it and just become stronger, but not taller? So that's not how that works. (laughs) But what if it was? Then it's a totally different like spring that you have to drink out of the buffness spring. I would totally drink out of the buffness spring. The spring of sick gains. <laughs> uh, by that, you just mean protein powder. <laughs> well, thank all of you for listening to our podcast. Along with the random tangent that just happened. Our podcast, Finding the Litter and the Golds. Um, you may have found us through SoundCloud, but we have totally moved on to Anchor and are releasing episodes just on there because it costs us nothing and gets us on a lot of different podcasting apps. So you can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, and Overcast. If you find us on any of those and you'd love to subscribe, we'd appreciate that. Uh, give us a like, a rating, a review, all that jazz. Um, And we appreciate you very much. See you on the Shire side, y'all. Bye.